Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Baiter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today's guest is Jim Dansenbaker. I recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago, but I saved it till now because it fits well with the upcoming Christmas bird count season. Jim's been on my radar as someone to have on a guest as a long time. The list of things to talk about with Jim is incredibly varied. Should we focus on his experiences in the far southern hemisphere leading wildlife trips to the Antarctic region? Or maybe his experiences listening to and uh, counting migrating nocturnal birds over his home in Battleground, Washington. He led a wasp trip there uh, a few years ago. Should we focus on his pelagic birding experiences off Washington and Oregon? Well, we touch on most of these topics in this episode. Before we begin, I want to talk briefly about the Audubon Society's Christmas bird counts for listeners that are unfamiliar with them. Prior to 1900, hunters often staged a Christmas side hunt where they chose up sides and competed to see which side could shoot and collect the largest pile of birds and animal carcasses in a day. The Audubon Society was just forming around 1900, and in 1900, Frank Chapman, an early officer, suggested a Christmas bird census where birders would get together and see how many birds they could see and count in a day. And that was the beginning of the Christmas bird count. Last year, according to a report written by Jeff LeBron on the National Audubon website, there were 2,459 Christmas bird count circles, 15 miles in diameter in the world, 1,842 in the U.S., 451 in Canada, 166 in Latin America. This is the lowest number of count circles since 2014 due to COVID, but still a fabulous effort. In addition, there were 10,000 fewer observers last year, but more time was spent on foot and less time in car than in previous years. I'll leave a link to this uh, report in the podcast notes. If you want to find a Christmas bird count to join, check with your local Audubon Society and see if there's an area that can use your help. Beginners are usually welcome, though again this year there are some restrictions to group size due to safety concerns with COVID. Well, enough of an introduction. Welcome Jim Danzenbaker to the Bird Banter Podcast number 118. Jim, welcome to the Bird Banter Podcast. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you very much for um, the invitation. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I, we were just chatting before the podcast, before we started recording. What a day in Pierce County. The storm really brought in some cool stuff. Well, it, I must admit, when I was looking at it, I was thinking, you know, that's the kind of thing that's never going to happen in Clark County. But I'm glad that you guys up uh, in Puget Sound area are getting a, a good taste of pelagic birding with your feet on the ground. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, we have the Doom Peninsula. And Charlie and I talked about that on a podcast that's going to go up next week. And uh, it is quite a place. Oh, my goodness. We get lots of stuff there. And Charlie was out there this morning and had a thick-billed myrrh fly by. And uh, I got over there, didn't get that, but I got red fallow rope. And they, they got fork-tail storm petrol right after, uh, excuse me, leeches storm petrol right after I left. And it was it was a fabulous day. And you've got a black Bernie warbler down where you live, or near where you live, yeah, don't you? Uh, apparently in Skamania County, there's, uh, what, a, a, an immature bird or a female bird or something like that that was found yesterday. I don't know the plumage as well enough, but I saw the photos. It's pretty bright, you know, so I, I don't know if it's a female or a non-breeding male or what, but it looked yeah, pretty cool. It, I would say it's probably a female, but uh, I must admit I didn't analyze the photos very much other than, well, pretty good bird for Skamania County. <laughs> pretty good bird for yeah, west of the Rockies, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. You know, you never know where those eastern warblers going to end up. You know, they're supposed to be going south and... 
every once in a while you got one that would like to uh, blaze a new trail and go west instead. Yeah, it works out that way. Uh, yeah, we were, uh, I, I've only met you a couple of times. The last time I saw you was uh, down, Renee, where you live at Rock Creek Mill Pond in Skamania County. And uh, uh, you did me the favor of uh, letting me know that the Ross's goose was not there. So I didn't have to spend the hour tromping around in the wind and cold and rain like you did. I just spent a few minutes uh, uh, getting to meet you. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's interesting. I believe, I, I'm not sure if my memory is exactly correct on this one, but I, I thought I heard a, a rumor that the bird turned out to be some sort of a, a hybrid snow crossed Rosses. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm wrong on that, but it, for some reason I'm, I'm believing that's what I heard sometime last year, but. It, it could be possible. I, I didn't pick up on that, but anyway, it doesn't, it, uh, it's not a bird. I uh, can't count that I saw anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, at least if it was there, it would stick out in a crowd. It would. So, Jim, I wanted to talk uh, about your birding story. You grew up in a birding family. How cool to have, uh, you know, siblings, at least, who are birders. How did that, tell me that story. Well, uh, first of all, I, you know, I tell everybody who, who asked me how I, how I started birding. Um, I'm, a, I'm a second generation birder. My, my father was, I, I guess, technically a birder, even when he was a teenager growing up. And when he went to college, he was birding. He had a cousin that he went out birding with. So it was sort of in his blood at an early age. And when my brother and I got to a certain age, it was like, okay, let's, let's go out birding. And that age for me happened to be six years old. Okay. So, uh, but I do remember not particularly enjoying the birding experience when I first started because way back when, and I won't tell you how way back that when mm -hmm. is, um, and binoculars were very, very, very small. And invariably, when you went into the woods, the warblers would be at the treetops. So mm -hmm. it was very difficult to see anything. And we really didn't understand what the point was of going out and trying to see things that were impossible to see. Um, however, I remember the first bird that my brother and I were able to identify was a, was a turn that flew across uh, the end of our road. And I, and the, 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 the place where I grew up, the, the house that I grew up in was uh, next to the coastal marshes in Southern New Jersey. So there was a lot of bird activity. Mm -hmm. So a, a turn flew by and we looked at, we, we looked at it, and took, a, took out a book or something and said, oh, that was a common turn. Great. We finally identified a bird. And then obviously after that, you try to identify every single bird that you see, whether sure. it's a sparrow or something more interesting. It wasn't until years later when we realized that we misidentified the first bird, but yeah. that was okay because it was probably a forester's turn that actually flew by the end of our road instead of a common. I was going to say, yeah. you guys started with a kind of a tough ID for your first bird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should have started with cardinals and blue jays, which, which were abundant, but we decided, Hey, you know, let's go for that weird bird that just flew by the end of the yard. Very nice. Uh, so both you and your brother were birding from a young age uh, with your dad, yes. some at least, and I'm sure with other people eventually. Uh, and you ended up on the West Coast. Did you uh, grow up on the East Coast and move out here later or when? Well, I, I grew up in the East Coast and went to high school in the East Coast. I went to Villanova University outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And I think it was 1987 plus or minus a year that I moved out to California uh, a year or two after my brother moved out to California as well. And I sort of got tired of him 
calling me saying, oh, well, I saw these great birds from the yard or I went on a pelagic trip or I went somewhere and had these wonderful things that I had absolutely no way of seeing if I was going to stay in New Jersey. So mm-hmm. that motivated me to, to make the move out west. New Jersey's not a bad place to start, though. It's pretty, pretty central on the Atlantic Flyway. Yes. It's got Cape it's, May and the Delaware mm-hmm. Bay. It's got some pretty, pretty hot shit birding stuff. Yeah. And um, I grew up 30, 35 miles north of Cape May. Oh, wow. And when I really got into it, we, we ended up going to Cape May twice every weekend during the fall for as long as I can remember. So we really got our fill of some really spectacular migration days down at the point, yes. as well as some days where we wondered what in the world happened that, uh, that resulted in absolutely nothing showing up. So yeah. <laughs> it was hit or miss, but mostly it was a hit. So that was good. And we also met a lot of the people who were then, um, you know, heavy shakers in the birding community that were, that were in Cape May. So that was a really good way to, to really kind of start things off. It's a Mecca of East Coast birding for sure. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, so you have spent a lot of time doing pelagic birding. You sort of mentioned that. How did you get into pelagic birding? And you've kind of, it's been, you know, you've really became pretty accomplished and uh, gotten a lot of opportunities. Tell me about that. Well, the first pelagic trip I ever went on was a, a, a pelagic off Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I remember my, my entire family went, including my mother, who was mm-hmm. not really a birder. And I remember that trip because it was rough and we only saw one pelagic bird and that was a Pomerang Jaeger. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time was trying to figure out how to stay on the boat instead of getting rocked off the boat. Wow. And then um, my first trip off New Jersey, I think we saw a total of one great shearwater. <laughs> which we thought that was great stuff because it came right into the bow of the boat. Mm-hmm. And then the next trip after that, we had one, I think one Audubon shearwater or one Manx shearwater somewhere along the line, the number of species started to grow and it all of a sudden became much more interesting rather than just going out and seeing one bird. We started seeing multiple species of and multiple um, individuals of each species. So it, it started getting good. And, and that sort of planted the seed of having an interest in pelagic birding that I, that I have right now. Yeah. So you've, you've done a lot of Southern hemisphere pelagic birding and pelagic birding. How did, how did that, uh, how'd you get going on that? Well, when I moved to California, somewhere along the line, I met Debbie Shearwater oh, and I okay. started going on some of her trips as a participant. Mm-hmm. And one day she asked me if, uh, if I was willing to be one of her guides. And I jumped at that. And, you know, I think I waited about a half a second before I responded. And I, I think I've probably ended up doing about 350 or so boat trips with Debbie. And that really uh, grounded me in, you know, being, identif- being able to identify pelagic species and looking for those rare birds and studying the common ones as well. And um, that sort of launched my interest in whatever country I would end up visiting, trying to figure out how do I get, how do I get onto a boat and go out and see what seabirds are off the coast of whatever country I was in. Sure. So that, and, and, you know, as they say, there's no looking back after you've gotten bitten by the pelagic bug. It seems like it. The pelagic birders are a different sort. I mean, I go pelagic birding because that's where some of the birds are. And mm-hmm. I've learned I've learned how to not get seasick and I can tell what a few of them are. And it's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. But yes. you know, I, would, I would never consider myself a, an, a, a real pelagic birder. I, I'm a wannabe, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> but after after a while, 
I believe my brother was the first one who went on uh, one of Cheeseman's trips to um, Falkland Islands, South Georgia, and the and the Antarctic Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And when I saw his photos, I was thinking, oh, this is this has got to be like the the trip of a lifetime to be able to go down there. And somewhere along the line, um, the Cheeseman's convinced me that this is something that I had to do. So I sort of got a little bit of a leave from the job that I was working at and hopped on board that as, as sort of a, a half staff person. Okay. And so I was able to give a few lectures on board and, and be a naturalist on watch and sort of learning as I was going, because obviously all the species down there were totally and completely different for me. And um, then I kept on going back every year. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. I, I, you know, I have to say that's a, a tour company. I don't know about Cheeseman. Is that a, what, Obviously, it's well known enough that you're doing it. I'm, yeah, I'm not... well, it's, it's Cheeseman's Ecology Safaris. Okay. So it's not the kind of thing that you go on because you want to um, amass a, a total number of, of check marks, so to speak, on your on your bird list. Mm-hmm. It's something where it's more akin to a lot of um, general and specific wildlife observation and really getting to know the birds and the mammals and the, and you know, the environment that you're going to be traveling in. Okay. And um, the thing that was great about the Antarctic trips that I did with, with the Cheesemans was there was, regardless of what subject interested you, there would be a lecture on it. <laughs> you know, so I, a, I gave lectures. There was something for everyone. Very exactly. Nice. I gave lectures on seabird identification and king penguin biology and that kind of stuff. And but there was somebody to, uh, lecturing on history. Someone would be lecturing on geology, you know, rock formations. Somebody mm-hmm. else would be talking about, you know, whales and, you know, interaction with this, that, and everything else. And someone would be talking about the history of South Georgia and whaling and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really fascinating. And I realized very quickly that you could go on 10 of those trips and learn something new every single time based on which lecture you decided to go to. Right. The lecturers were, were absolutely top notch in their field. Very cool. I bet you can attract some serious talent. They attracted you some serious talent to give lectures. If you get a chance to cruise around the Antarctic peninsula and well, all you of know, that at the same time. It, yeah. It, it was funny being a lecturer on a ship is one of the, one of the challenges I believe that all of the lecturers faced was trying to figure out how to keep the entire room full of people awake. <laughs> because what we would do is, okay, you're, you've got the lecture slot right after lunch. Okay, just imagine everyone's gotten this wonderful meal. Now we're gonna ask them to come into the lecture room and, and sit down on these wonderful cozy chairs. Now we're gonna dim the lights and um, we're going to turn on a screen so you can see some photos and just for fun, we're going to rock the ship back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> and it really doesn't take much to figure out what's going to happen next. So, so in addition to trying to provide all of the information that you've already organized and were intent on delivering, you also had to put in a little bit of humor to keep people motivated to stay awake and figure out what you were going to say next. So that, that sure. was an interesting challenge. <laughs> I bet it was. 
I've always wanted to go to Antarctica. And actually, I've been scheduled for the last two years to go on the ABA cruises going down there. It's been canceled two years, postponed, excuse me, two years in a row It's with Rock Jumper. And Alvaro Jaramillo is the kind of guy who I went through to get onto that. But anyway, maybe next year. We'll see. What's it like down there? To get me a feel for what, what uh, you know, seabirding and, and the getting off on the Zodiacs. And what's that? It just sounds incredibly cool. It, it is, uh, you know, I, I, I will not kid you. It is totally cool. It's one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. So just to give you an idea, you know, you get on the ship in Ushuaia and you go out the Beagle Channel and you see, the, you see your first penguins um, leaping out of the water and it's like, oh my goodness, this is the greatest experience in the world. But then the first full day you're out on the um, Argentine shelf on the way to the Falklands and the first thing you notice is look at all the giant petrels that are following the boat. And then you realize, you know, there's Southern Royal albatrosses that have an 11 foot wingspan that are following the boat and flying all over the place. And then there's black browed albatrosses galore, you know, hundreds a day. And then some of the more diminutive species. And then you start seeing penguins. And it's just like you've arrived in some sort of Almost a fairy world, tale. world that you never even imagined existed because of the biodiversity and just the overall volume of birds that are there. And another thing we realized is, you know, if breakfast consisted of anything remotely having to do with bacon, that meant a lot of birds would be following the ship because of the, the bacon aroma that would be wafting behind the ship and all of the giant petrels and all of these pelagic birds that really do a lot of their foraging based on factory, sure. Um, they're gone. That ship is interesting. We got to follow that ship. <laughs> so you just, all you do, instead of, uh, instead of chumming, you just put a little skillet and uh, have a bacon going on it all day yeah, long. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the unfortunate thing is you eventually have to go in and eat breakfast when you know that outside there are these, these massively incredible things that you've always wanted to see your entire life. And instead you're sitting inside eating bacon and eggs. Yeah. And it doesn't get dark very much. No, it gets dark at around uh, what 11 PM or something like that. And then gets light around four 30 or so in the morning. So you know that at some point you're going to be sleeping during, during daylight hours, which is almost yeah. sacrilegious, but yeah. uh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You gotta gotta uh, take care of yourself a little bit. Yeah. Very cool. So it sounds like you have really, really had an opportunity to get to know that area and had some great experiences. Mm -hmm. That is cool. Uh, now you have some experience with Oregon pelagics too, don't you? Yeah, I've I've actually been guiding for Tim Shelmerdine and Oregon pelagic tours, as well as uh, guiding for uh, Westport Seabirds. Okay. Yes. I've seen, that's where I've seen you on mm -hmm. Westport. I yeah. know I've seen you a couple yeah. of other times. Okay. And, and I highly, highly recommend both of those companies. If you're, if you want to go out and really get to know uh, the pelagic birds, because all of the, all of the leaders on both organizations are incredibly good at what they do. We're, we're, um, we're, sur we're basically surveying everything. We're, we're doing eBird lists for everything, which are shared with everybody at the end. And we, we really take it upon ourselves to make sure that every person who gets on that boat will see every single thing that we point out, or at least we give it our, our honest effort to make that happen. But in addition to just seeing those birds, we want to make sure that people are learning about the birds as well. So, you know, any, any little tidbit of information that we can provide to the customers to allow them to remember 
um, the experience of seeing the birds as well as, you know, that, that was a black-footed albatross and it's coming from Hawaii and it's out here for seven or eight days on a foraging run. And, you know, that really makes that bird come alive as opposed to that's a black-footed albatross, what's next? Yeah. I, you know, Westport Pelagics, I haven't been on the Oregon trip, so Westport Pelagics is just, I go a couple times a year and it's just really top notch. I mean, they have the longest running consistent uh, record keeping of pelagics in the world uh, and, and do it just from a scientific standpoint, do it great. And from a customer service standpoint are terrific. And just, it's always such a pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Chris Chris comes around with the ginger snaps. I mean, really. (laughs) That's always one of the highlights. So if you're having a slow day and you're, you're, you're just trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to keep myself going? Out comes Chris with the ginger snaps and it's like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> yeah, really, really. I, I don't need a breath of fresh air. I never go inside on those trips because uh, motion sicknesses can be an issue for me. And I just know eyes on the horizon, stay outdoors, stay away from the stern. You know, I, I, I've got my exactly. uh, routine down. Uh, exactly. Gin, suck on a gin gin at the first hint of nausea. I mean, I, <laughs> I, uh, I've absolutely got my routine down and I don't change it. <laughs> Well, I, I am extremely lucky because I've never even felt slightly sick on a pelagic trip. And that includes, you know, 25 foot to 30 foot seas on the Drake Passage between the Antarctic Peninsula and um, Tierra del Fuego. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of the one up on the bridge going, oh, look at that wave. The spray went all the way over the top, over the bridge and just having a wonderful time. Yeah. And I doubt if I would have done as many pelagic trips as I have done if if I had some uh, level of seasickness each time. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the first few times I thought, I'll never do this again. It was, it was, it was that bad, you know, right. you know where right. you just, you pick yourself up off the floor long enough to see a bird, but I've, I've, I've got my routine down. I can do it now. Mm-hmm. I can do it. Yeah. yeah. Don't think about it and don't talk about it for the day or two before is half the trick. I think. Well, I, I tell everybody if you're, if you're starting to feel a little bit queasy, just think about all the birds that you're out there that you're about ready to see. And, and think about what they're doing and where they're coming from and how they got there. And it's, you know, try to try to outsmart your brain and outsmart your stomach and, you know, just be looking at that next great bird that's going to come across from the horizon. Very cool. Yeah. I think whatever it takes, just do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to get away from pelagic birding. I might yeah. get sick here. <laughs> just <laughs> Jim, you are really involved in the Christmas bird count uh, uh, stuff here in Washington too. I, aren't you the, do you, I'm not sure. Tell me your role. I'm, I know you're uh, an active uh, leader in that, uh, movement, well, but I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I think calling me an active leader is, is probably an overstatement. I, I have, I've never been a compiler or an organizer for a Christmas bird count out here. Uh, I have participated in several uh, Christmas bird counts down here. However, after, after I finished as WASP president about, what, five years ago or whatever it was, mm-hmm. I was looking around trying to figure out, okay, how can I, what can I do for, for WASP and the birding community in Washington? Because I still felt that Washington really helped me out when I, when I moved to Washington. So I was just trying to figure out what can I do. And I, I started seeing on tweeters, you know, people saying, can anybody tell me about such and such a a Christmas bird count, or there's an organizer saying, we're going to have a Christmas bird count at blah, blah, blah. And, you know, such and such a date. 
And I thought, well, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a master list of all of the Christmas bird counts that happen in the state of Washington and one central repository of all of that information. So that, that gave rise to creating such a list and reaching out to all of the organizers of all of the uh, Christmas bird counts that have that are all in Washington or sometimes just barely reaching into Washington. So people would have a central repository of information that they could glean to figure out which bird counts they would want to go on. It may be something that people already know, but it's also a really good idea to have it all in one place. So there's not a lot of people asking questions like, do you know when this is and where's that and how are they organizing and all that kind of stuff. Who do you get a hold of if you want to be in it? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's your take on the 2021-2022 CBCs? Uh, are most of them going to be open? Is COVID going to be a big issue? What's well, what's happening? From what I've seen, so last year, last year we had a full complement of Christmas bird counts, except I believe six were canceled. You know, including you know the obvious one, Nia Bay, because the entire sure. area was was shut down. And it was, it was a little bit of a challenge to get all of the information because I didn't want to put a summary out there and with, with absolutely no mention whatsoever of, of COVID and mm-hmm. you know, protocols and all of that kind of thing. So it was a little, it was a little more, it, it was a little more difficult to get complete information to put into each um, CBC blurb, blurb, should I say, saying, you know, talking about each individual one. But we were able to get through it uh, with only six less than the previous year. Yeah. So this year, uh, I at least two of those that were canceled last year are going to happen this year. Okay. And it looks like we're going to have potentially two more that were either reactivated or starting from scratch this year. So oh, which so ones are those? Four. Well, there's uh, just been emailing with Dalton Spencer, who is in uh, Centralia or Lewis County. Lewis County, yeah. He's doing the Lewis County one. He's also doing one, and I don't remember the name of it. Something I like Satsop, CBC, Ooh, or okay, down down by Elma. Uh, yeah, it's somewhere somewhere between Grace Harbor and Lewis County. Okay, somewhere cool. in that area. And he's, he's going to be the organizer and, and presumably the compiler of that one as well. So it's good to see these additional Christmas bird counts coming in. Very cool. And I think right now, everybody, you know, regardless of the fact that, that COVID is still with us, people are, people are more comfortable in, you know, interacting with other people amid the current environment. And they know what they can do and what they can't do. Everybody has their comfort level now and have had time to come to grips with their personal feelings. And exactly. Their exactly. their understanding of the data and that kind of thing. Whereas yeah. a year ago, it's like, what the hell's going on? You know, it was, I know, I know. And and it was it, it was difficult to ask people, so what do you have for your Christmas bird count when everybody was sort of living under the same gray cloud going, Well, we really don't know and you know, I don't want to ask people to come because they're not going to be comfortable. I'm not going to be comfortable. And there's not going to be a, a pre-meeting and there's not going to be a big, huge get together afterwards, which is, you know, one of the most enjoyable highlights of a, of a day out in the, the ice and the wind and the, 
and the rain is coming back and and sharing the camaraderie of the moment with your other counters and all of a sudden that's no longer there for the most part people understood that and said you know we're going to go out and count anyway and we understand the situation and no one can help it so let's just deal with it i think you're right you know one of the one of the real cool things about CBCs to me is that they can be a gateway. They can be an, a, a chance for people in the community to say, you know, this birding, well, I don't know what it's like, but I might be interested. Uh, mm-hmm. And they hear about the CBC, you know, somehow the newspaper or newsletter from a friend and they say, hey, or you just say, hey, I'm going to be doing the, this uh, section of our CBC. You want to come along and help count? And exactly. it, it, can be a, it can be a very uh, beginner friendly way to touch t- taste the taste the birding scene and see if it's for you so well i had sent out a note to tweeters because i was trying to figure out so how do i identify other christmas bird counts that are out there that we didn't have the previous year Mm. and in in doing that i was able to find out these these christmas bird counts that are going to happen this year that were canceled last year but in addition there was one there was one gentleman who posted Oh, I don't know what a CBC is, but it sounds really interesting. Can someone tell me something about it? And, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, like, you know, something that all of us, we just know what CBC is. Yeah, I mean, I'm a physician. But, is that a complete blood count? I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was good to, it, it was good to see that. And for me to realize that, you know, all these abbreviations that we throw around out there, there's a tremendous number of new birders out there who just started to realize that there were birds in the backyard uh, as a result of everything that we've been going through for the last year and a half. And CBC is not something that just, um, you know, comes out and people know what it is. So you're right. It, it was good to know that maybe we need to stay, take one step back from our use of abbreviations and, and describe it fully. So people know exactly what it is and, and that's, that it's basically an invitation to participate in citizen science, just like uh, putting in an eBird checklist is. Exactly. Jim, I'm going to switch subjects a little bit. Uh, two things. First, when did you come to Washington and what brought you up here? <laughs> well, that's a sort of a roundabout thing. So I, I lived in, I, I lived in, I grew up in New Jersey and then moved to California. I was there for about 10 years and the reason I moved from California is, is that the traffic got to be so awful that you had to basically plan your day around the traffic pattern. And I decided that was no way to live a life. So I moved to Wyoming for two years and that was sort of the opposite. And, you know, I noticed in Wyoming, if five people got to the same intersection at the same time, they'd be sweating, trying to figure out, oh my goodness, I can't handle it. There's five cars at the same intersection at the same time. But Wyoming was not a really good place to live if you had to fly for work a lot. And at the time, I was um, I was a sales manager for a particular market of uh, outdoor sporting products, mm. including binoculars and spotting scopes. So I had to travel a tremendous amount. And and coming back one day after a particularly difficult travel session, I walked into the president's office and I said, you know makes no sense whatsoever to require that I live in Wyoming. And he just looked up at me and said, just pick a place and move. And I said, okay. <laughs> so then I decided, well, I, I narrowed it down to four or five states. I always enjoyed my visits to the Pacific Northwest. So I looked at Washington and my choice was I had to live in a place that was close to an airport, mm-hmm. obviously. And I decided, well, I guess I'll live near Seattle. 
so for my first visit to Seattle, where I was thinking about looking at, at real estate, um, somebody smashed into me on the freeway. <laughs> and I decided, well, maybe Seattle isn't the greatest place in the world to live. So that was crossed off the list. <laughs> then I asked someone, what about Olympia? And they said, well, you're still going to have to travel to SeaTac to get on a plane. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And so it, it, it slowly narrowed down to the Vancouver, Washington area. Okay. And um, after about four months of looking at houses that I wasn't interested in, uh, my realtor showed me a place in Battleground where I live now. Mm -hmm. And before we got out of the vehicle, a black-headed grosbeak flew across the road. And I almost said, I don't care what the house looks like, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it beats the star on your house barrel. And, yeah. yeah, and it's the house that I live in now. So that's, that's how I ended up in Washington. Okay. And it's only 25 minutes from PDX. So it's a, it's a great place to sort of launch yourself when you have to travel. Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, it is nice being near an international airport. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so the other uh, thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, I I've heard, and I, I don't know how I heard about this, but somehow I heard that you do uh, nocturnal, you listen to birds fly overhead at night. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what to call that, but uh, tell me what that's like and how you do it. Well, um, I would say within a couple of couple of weeks of me moving into the house, I, I, I sleep with the window open. Mm -hmm. And I heard all of these incredible ships going over. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? Where do I live? What's, what's happening? And I realized that they were all Swainson's thrushes. Mm. And because that's the most audible of our nocturnal migrants that, that uh, flow through our area. And it's, it was basically a river of Swainson's thrushes going over. I mean, okay. all night long. Wow. And, and I was estimating like in the thousands every Ooh. night. Holy mackerel. And then I started thinking, well, you know, okay, how do I analyze this to try to figure out what the, what the numbers actually are? And I was thinking, okay, if one, if one Swainson's thrush goes over and it's uh, doing an audible chip note or, or blurp, or whatever, mm -hmm. however you'd like to describe it, how many times would it be doing that within audible distance of where, of where I am? So mm -hmm. I, went to, I went to the local refuge and I set up a recording of a Swainson's thrush blurp or mm -hmm. however you want to say it. And I walked away from it to figure out how far away it would have to be for me okay. to be able to hear it. Yeah. Good. And then I did some analysis trying to figure out, okay, how fast does a Swainson's thrush fly? Mm -hmm. And then with that formula, you can figure out, okay, one bird, you could put, you could probably hear one bird a total of three times. Okay. If you're standing in one location. So with that, and then if you count say a hundred blurps per minute or two minutes, Mm -hmm. You can sort of figure out how many birds are going over. And that okay. was absolutely fascinating stuff. And I would post to tweeters, you know, I, I had 4,816 Swainson's thrushes going over and people like, oh, what? Yeah, I remember seeing, that's how I heard about it. I yeah. said, what is this guy talking about? That's yeah. impossible. Yeah, like, uh, you know, something, it, something's in the water in Clark County. You know, that's all you could say. <laughs> but then I realized that, for every single thing that I thought I knew about that migration, the more I thought about it, that there were 10 things that I didn't know about it. 
You know, for example, at, do I just happen to live under a river of raptors? How wide is the river of raptors? Does it follow topographical features? Does mm-hmm. it go around the edge, uh, the edges of artificially lit cities? You know, right. exactly what's going on here. How fast do they really fly? You know, how far do they go in one night? So if someone's reporting, oh, we're having a mega thrush night over Olympia, Washington, and I'm not hearing anything at all, should I anticipate the same thing is going to be happening the next night down here? So mm-hmm. there, for every for everything that I sort of thought I figured out, there were five more things that I realized I never knew that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. But that was that was truly the most fascinating part of it. Because I, I, I love to figure, I, I would love to know what I don't know. Yeah, did you figure out any answers to any of those questions? <laughs> well, not, not really. I, I, I think I sort of got lazy in the process because I was thinking, oh, well, that means that every single thrush that goes over my house will call three times so that I can hear it. And it's, a, it's an easy mathematical formula, which is all totally and completely ridiculous because you, know, you can have birds that are flying much higher up. Mm-hmm that you're not going to hear you, you, and, and do adults call as frequently as young birds? Do young birds call more because they're trying to keep in touch with all of the other ones? Do adults fly earlier in migration than young birds? So there's all sorts of little variations in that formula that there's absolutely no way that I would ever have a clue about that. But there were 4,381 and you're quite certain of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a solid number. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started realizing that there were other little chips like sparrows and warblers that were going over as well. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember one, one time we had a, we had a wasp field trip and it was basically at my house and, and a very dear friend of mine came over with um, um, a parabolic miller, mirror that we, we set out in the backyard and right? she brought computer and I had my computer and we had all sorts of things. So when a chip, was heard, we were able to analyze it and figure out, oh, that was a black-throated gray warbler or that was a savannah sparrow. Oh, wow. And I must admit, it's the first time that I've ever had strangers um, camped out in tents in my backyard. And it was all because of the swings and thrushes that were going over. Sounds like a pretty good reason to camp out in your backyard to me. It it was a lot of fun. And I was just going, I hope I don't have any holes in the backyard that people are going to trip over and And, and had this not to be the positive experience that I hoped it would be. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds cool. I, uh, that was in the days when I was working and, and I was not doing a lot of uh, field trips, but very cool. I wish I'd done that. Mm-hmm. It, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's not as consistent now. And I, I have to wonder whether it's because of the massive amount of development that's happening in battleground right now. That's maybe the artificial lighting further north of me is causing the birds to go further west or further east and a lot of them not going over my house. So, so there's a lot of variables in, at play that, you know, if, if you go with, a, with a, an assumption that they're following the edge of artificial light, mm-hmm. then you might not be in that same river the next year based on what the development um, yeah. Uh, yeah. activity is, being, is happening in town. Those are all good questions that probably don't have answers. Nope, I don't have a clue. <laughs> there was there was one time, and I and I I I feel really bad about this. Um, while I was while I was really obsessing about all this thrush migration, I, I sent a note out to tweeters saying, 
we we need to have a Swainson's thrush night out and everybody go out in their backyard and listen for thrushes and report on what you hear going mm -hmm. over and let me know the coordinates. And then we can put the coordinates on a map and figure out, okay, are you on a ridge? Are you on the edge of a town? You know, and, and, and somehow figure out where these little streams or wide mm -hmm. rivers of birds are. So yeah. we can better anticipate exactly where they're going to be from year to year. But at that time, I was so busy with um, work. I, I, I had switched jobs and I became the sales manager for the Western Hemisphere for uh, Coa Sporting Optics. Oh, my goodness. So I, was, I was gone 80% of the time. And, you know, when I was at home, the last thing I wanted to do was sit there and analyze thrush data. You know, I, I, I wanted to sleep more than anything else. So I was never able to complete that project um, that people willingly provided information to me to be able to maybe answer some of these questions. So I, I still have a folder called Swainson's Thrush Activity 2000, whatever it was, um, but haven't done anything with it yet. Well, it sounds like uh, with the comfort everybody has with Zoom meetings now, it seems like mm -hmm. everybody knows how to do a Zoom meeting. You could organize that remotely and uh, give a little tutorial on how to do it and uh, make it happen. Yeah, that, 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 would, be a, that would be a solid plan. <laughs> I, I would say that's more of a harebrained idea than a solid plan, but it, it could work. Mm -hmm. It could work. So, Jim, what do you see going forward? What are your, you know, in terms of birding, what are, you know, if you had uh, some things you could do, what would be your dream things to do or ambitions that you have? Where's your passion well, right now? You know, it, 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 it's funny. I, I've, I've led quite a few tours in my life, but they've all been to the same places. You know, I've, I've led probably eight or 10 trips to Panama, mm -hmm. done maybe 10 or 12 trips to, to Ecuador, you know, leading people, um, three or four trips to Venezuela, a couple, a couple to Guyana and you know, all the Antarctic stuff. What I'm finding now is it's really fun to go as a participant. Oh, cool. And you don't have to, you don't have to deal with anything. The only thing you have to do is get yourself to the meeting place and, and then just go. And, you know, it's probably actually a really good idea to actually have an, a clue about what birds are in that particular part of the world. So I'd say over the last two and a half or maybe three years, I had the, I had the opportunity to, to visit China. Oh, wow. And do some birding there. And I, I, went to the Philippines for a three week trip to the Philippines with a, with a, with a birding tour company that I didn't realize that they did every single thing possible to see every single bird in the entire country. And, you know, five days into it, I didn't know whether I would survive or not because of the pace. Yeah. And I went to Ethiopia as well with three friends and, you know, just had an absolute, uh, exhausting, but, but great time seeing wildlife that I never thought I would ever see in my entire life. So and I'm trying to, I'm trying to right now visit places that I've never been to that I have absolutely no idea what to expect. Yeah. So next, next November, I'm going to New Zealand as a participant. Oh, cool. oh wow. And Very nice. I don't have a clue what birds are down there. And all I know is there, it includes four pelagic trips. And one of the highlights of one of the trips in the itinerary was you will see sooty shearwaters and bullers shearwaters and flesh footed shearwaters and short tailed shearwaters. And I'm going, Sounds like Westport. <laughs> I think I know those birds. Yes, I think I know those birds. So you exactly, but uh, <clears throat> I am I am very 
uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it a lot, you know, going down there and seeing what the birds are because closest I've ever been to New Zealand was the Philippines. And I didn't have a clue what any of the birds were there. So, Very cool. So, so it sounds like you've gone on some, some just tours with tour companies and you've mm -hmm. also put together tours with some friends. Did you usually mm -hmm. look for a local guide when you went on these uh, tours with friends or did you guys feel comfortable doing it all by yourself? Uh, we, we always used a local guide because I don't feel right going to a country, bringing a bunch of people to a country and not providing some sort of economic activities for the locals who really know the birds. Yeah. I, I think that's a huge plus. And plus it just adds so much. You, uh, mm -hmm. I've, I've come to feel like, you know, big, big company organized tours are terrific. And I've done two or three of those and they're great, but I have to say, I really am finding that the best way to go birding in a country, it costs about the same or even less to go with even yourself or even one or two or three people, four people, and just find a, a good local guide who'll take you around. Mm -hmm. And boy, you get to set the pace, you get personal attention, you feel exactly. like you're contributing yeah. to the local economy more. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a superior experience for me. That's, that's what we did in, in China and Ethiopia. It was, I think, with China, it was just three of us that went over, mm -hmm. had a local guide. And we just saw a ton of stuff. It was it was billed as cranes, pheasants, and seed eaters or something like that. I don't know how the mm -hmm. seed eater part yeah. it, but it did. It's a fascinating trip. I never thought in my wildest imagination that I would ever get to bird anywhere in China. And just to experience such a massively different culture than than even I mean, you can go to Venezuela or you can go to Ecuador and at least when there's a sign, you can sort of figure out potentially what it is. But in China, it's sort of like, well, I'm clueless on that one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and Philippines was was sort of similar. And Ethiopia was just this sort of, oh, my goodness, I'm not in Kansas anymore kind of thing. Yeah. Well, good for you. You've had some great experiences. Sounds like you have some fabulous trips coming up. Uh, and good for you. Good for you. Well, you, you asked me what what I saw on my horizon, I'm going to continue to um, do guiding for some bird festivals across the country. Mm -hmm. Like uh, yesterday I, I, I had just returned from Rio Grande Valley bird festival in South Texas. Wow. What a great place. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been, I, I go down, I've gone down and uh, guided there for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it, last year obviously was a, the first time I wasn't able to go down and they had a virtual mm -hmm. festival. Uh, including T-shirts that had three birds across the, that was the design with a mask over each one of them. So that was. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Did is, Does Mary Gustafson still arrange the guides for she that? She organizes all of the field trips and all of the guides. And she is, she is a jewel among jewels in the birding community. Oh, she is I, absolutely second to none. I met her when I was in, I spent a month in, uh, in South, in the, in the Valley, Rio Grande Valley, mm -hmm. not this, past winter, the winter before COVID, the January and February before COVID started, two years ago, I guess, and uh, uh, looked up, Mary had her on the podcast. We, we sat down in the National Butterfly Garden on a bench oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, did a podcast episode. It was really fun. What mm -hmm. a what a cool person. I, I, I knew of her because she went to school here for a couple of years uh, up at, uh, at, I think it was PLU or UPS. I can't, can't remember which. And uh, 
And Ken Brown, a close birding buddy of mine, was sort of uh, knew her and got her out a little bit uh, when she was just beginning as a birder up here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, oh, she's going to be good. And he was mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, the, the first time I met her was one of my many trips with my father and brother down to Cape May. Oh. And we went to a place called Higby Beach, which was renowned for passerin migration. Mm-hmm. And one day, I, one day I remember I was in there and I was walking a trail that was near the parking area. And all of a sudden I, I, I found this woman who was sitting there on a, on a chair and she was next to a net and she had a black throated blue warbler in her hand and she was banding it. It was Mary Gustafson. And, and <laughs> that was cool. probably when I was a teenager, I didn't have a clue who she was or even what she was doing. I was like, well, this is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Yeah, I had she, no idea that even this this age of my life, I would still know her and, you know, spend a little bit of time with her, even even very short little snippets of time because she's extremely busy during festival time. Yeah, very. She is a, a, a wonderful woman. It's such a treat to meet her. Anyway, Jim, I'm going to wrap up. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if if uh, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you? What's what's the best way they could? Uh, well, that? probably by probably by text, and my phone number is three six zero seven zero two nine three nine five. I'll put that and in the podcast notes. Good. Okay. My my email address is the letter J, and then my last name at gmail.com. Perfect. I'll put those in the podcast notes. Uh, and right. uh, so if anyone wants to reach out to you, they can. Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's uh, nice to see you. Nice to see you high and dry and not being bounced around on the sea. Well, I, I appreciate what you're doing for the birding community. And, and um, um, thank you a lot for the invitation to uh, participate in the podcast. I appreciate it. This is, I, I think of, uh, besides it's just being fun, getting to talk to really cool people about birding. I mean, what's not good about that? Uh, I, I think it is a little bit of a way I can be a birding ambassador. So I try to do that. Thank you again. Take care, Jim. All right. Thank you. Have a good evening. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jim as much as I enjoyed talking with him. As always, you can find more related information on the birdbanner.com blog post associated with this episode, and I'll put a link in the podcast notes. Think about helping with a Christmas bird count or two this winter. I'll try to report on the three that I'm planning to do this year, the Tahoma Audubon Christmas Bird Count in Tacoma, the Vashon Island Christmas Bird Count, and the Grace Harbor Christmas Bird Count on an episode early in 2022. You can find contact information for all of the Washington State Christmas bird counts on the Washington Ornithological Society page, was.com, page that Jim keeps current. And again, I'll put a link to that in the podcast notes also. So until next time, good birding, good day, and thanks for listening. <laughs>